Before we dive into the uh, passages that were read just a moment ago, I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed gathered us together as your people that we might learn to walk in your ways. And so, Lord, as we come before your word, we pray that you would indeed teach us what it is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with you. Open our hearts and our minds that we might learn from you. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said at the beginning of our service, we are starting a brand new series that we are calling Generous Justice. And the reason why we're starting this series is because justice has been a major point of conversation in our country over the past year. Many people wondering, what does it mean to pursue justice? What does justice look like in practice? And as a result, we need to be willing as, as God's people to step into this conversation uh, in order to engage in it more fully. Chris, can you please reset this? Thanks. Um, one of the reasons why it's difficult for us to step into this conversation is because of the fact that it has been a contentious discussion. Uh, we've seen people arguing about justice on social media. We've heard it uh, debated in the news. And as a result, I think a lot of people are, are tentative when it comes to talking about it. But if we're honest, if we actually slow down long enough uh, to really listen to each other, what I think we find is that often the reason why we struggle with this topic is because we're coming at it with very, very different assumptions and definitions. For example, if I were to say, so what does it really mean to pursue justice? What is justice all about? Well, we have people debating, well, is it about individual rights? Is it about law and order? Is it about structures and systems? Is it about punishment? Is it about restoration? What do we even mean when we talk about justice. And my fear is that Christians living in this very, very contentious environment, seeing the, the vitriol and, and, the, and the anger that surrounds it will withdraw from a conversation that quite honestly we have a lot to contribute to. Because one of the things that we find when you read through the Bible is actually the Bible has a lot to say about justice. In fact, justice is perhaps one of the major themes found in the prophetic literature in the Old Testament. The prophets make up a massive amount of our Bible, and one of their central concerns was justice and the justice of God. And so we want to take some time to really ask ourselves the question, what does it mean that God is a God of justice? What does it mean for us to walk with him as his people? to pursue that justice together. And to help us do that, we're actually going to be looking at the theme of justice through the eyes of the Old Testament prophet Micah. See, Micah was a prophet who was sent to God's own people, to the people of Israel. And like all prophets, he had words of warning as well as words of hope. Words of warning, warning the people to turn from their ways, and then words of hope to encourage them as they seek to follow God. But what's really fascinating is if you actually start reading through the book of Micah, what you find is that his words of warning are focused on really two themes and two themes in particular. That was idolatry and injustice. In fact, just the opening chapters of Micah, if you open it up, you can divide the opening chapters right in half because they're equally divided between those two themes. 
of idolatry and injustice. You see, the people were starting to worship other gods. They were worshiping the gods of money, sex, and power, thinking that that's how they were going to find prosperity and security. And as a result of worshiping the gods of money, sex, and power, it led to injustice in their relationships with one another and with their neighbors. Because they were so focused on having money, sex, and power, because they were so focused on possessing these things and looking to their own desires and wants, they were doing so at the cost and the expense of their neighbors. They were exploiting the poor and the marginalized, the orphan and the widow, the foreigner and the alien. All in their attempts to secure for themselves their own desires, their own longings, their own wants. And so God sends the prophet Micah and he says, Micah, I want you to remind my people of who they are. Remind my people of who they are. You see, one of the things that um, the people were told when they were first going into the promised land was that their God was a God who had rescued them. You see, in Deuteronomy 15, 15, God says to them, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. And what he's talking about in Deuteronomy 15 is how they are to pursue justice in their dealings with one another in their personal relationships, in their financial dealings, in how they conduct business, in how they dispute property rights, in how they set up their law codes and their legal systems and their courts. He says, you are to be a people of justice. Why? Because you yourselves know what it's like to suffer when injustice reigns. You know what it's like to be slaves under cruel masters. You know what it's like to labor under their whips and their chains. But I set you free. And because I've set you free, I want you as my people to now be people who set other people free, who conduct yourselves with the kind of justice that I desire, the kind of justice that I long for as your God. And the problem is, is that come Micah's day, the people had forgotten They'd forgotten that their God was a God of justice. They'd forgotten their own story and what it's like to live under the oppression of others. And as a result, they are now buying into the same broken systems that have been perpetuated in the societies and the cultures around them. So God sends Micah and he says, you, Micah, are called to teach them what it means to walk according to my ways. You are to show them what it means to pursue justice. And what's so incredible about the book of Micah is that before he ever talks to him about, so how specifically do we do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God, the first thing that God gives him is a vision. He shows Micah a picture of what all of creation will one day be like when God comes in his glory. When God comes and reigns on his throne as king. When he brings his kingdom in its fullness, what will the future creation be like? And the reason why is because any definition of justice, any time we come across justice in the Bible, we need to read it in light of this definition. It only makes sense in the context of this vision that God gives to Micah. And what's so incredible about the vision is what we find when Micah opens his mouth. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to uh, Micah chapter 4, verses one to seven. 
Listen to what God says through the lips of Micah. He says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come. They will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now I want to pause right here. The very first thing that we see is that God's justice is for everybody. His justice is for all people. And that's important for us today. This is why we need to hear this is because nowadays the way that we do justice is that it's not for all people. It's for some people, but not equally applied to all. That often we use things like our power to simply perpetuate prejudice. We determine on the basis of what we have, who is in and who is out. On categories like your socioeconomic standing, your sex, your race, your ethnicity, your culture, what country you come from. We do not execute justice equally or evenly across all people. Our systems are broken and lopsided. And yet, what Micah says, but in God's definition of justice, it's not might makes right. But rather, God is going to come and judge all peoples. By his word, the law will go forth. And it gets even more beautiful as you start to read on. He says, he will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The second thing we learn about God's definition of justice is that when he comes and brings justice, it also brings peace. In a world of violence and conflict, where nation rages against nation, God's justice will bring an end to all of it. That not only will there be no more fighting, but the, the nations will actually work together in harmony to provide for the needs of others. That's what he means when he talks about beating their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. These are tools meant to be used to bring in the harvest to feed the people. And he says, and now nations will not be spending all of their gross domestic product and all their income and all, these, and all of their wealth on weapons of war. Rather, they will spend their resources seeking to provide for the needs of everybody. And they will do so working together in harmony. And it goes on and paints this beautiful picture of restoration and abundance. Notice what he says next. He says, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This picture of everybody sitting under their own vine and their own fig tree isn't just a line from Hamilton. Yes, my theater nerds know exactly what I'm referring to. The rest of you are like, what? No, what this is a picture of is of abundance. Everybody is provided for. Everyone has their own home. Everyone has their own land. Everyone has their own income. There's food on everyone's table. Because God's justice is not a retributive justice. It is a restorative justice. 
A kind of justice that provides for people in all of their needs. That's the picture that God paints for his people through the lips of the prophet Micah. He says, this is what my justice is all about. This is what it looks like. This is what will ultimately come to fruition when I come again in my glory. And he says, if we, as his people, are to know what it means to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with him, it needs to begin by understanding his heart, by understanding his ultimate goal and end, to enter into this world and to remake it and restore it, to bring about peace and justice for everyone. And in a world of brokenness, and broken systems, of the unequal application of the law, where those who often have the most get away with the greatest, what he's saying is he's saying, no, I have a heart for everybody, everybody made in my image, right down to the least of these. And I will bring about a justice that will truly provide for every single one of them. Unless we think that this is an Old Testament idea, We need only look to how Jesus inaugurates his own ministry to see that this was at the very core, the very heart of Jesus' own self-understanding and his own mission. We actually see it in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus has been baptized, he's been tempted in the wilderness and succeeded. Now he returns and he begins his public ministry. And this is what Luke writes. He says, now Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, when Jesus proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, what he's talking about is the Jubilee year. That back in Deuteronomy, God said that every seven years, anyone who is an indentured servant, anyone who's lost land or inheritance due to debt, is to have that land and inheritance restored. They're to be set free from bondage. They are to now be a people who have experienced what true restoration is like. And you want to know what? There is no recorded evidence from any historian that the Israelites ever put that into practice. And yet Jesus, standing up, reading from the words of the prophet Isaiah, says, but now I'm here to do what you couldn't. I'm here to inaugurate the year of the Lord's favor. And what is that year? It's good news to the poor, freedom to prisoners, recovery of the sights of the blind, and to setting the oppressed free. And typically, I think, uh, as modern Americans, we read that one part where it's like recovery of sight for the blind. And we just like hit that one. We're like, well, we know he did that one. But what about these other ones? And I think it's because we haven't learned to read Jesus' entire ministry through the lens of his inaugural address right here. Where he says, this is what I'm here to do. The rest of Luke's gospel, what do we see Jesus doing? Showing mercy to the outcasts. 
associating with the marginalized. Bringing redemption by spending time with tax collectors like Zacchaeus who suddenly takes all of his fraudulently earned money and turns it around and restores the fortunes of others. Jesus says, I came to do exactly this. I came to inaugurate what the prophets were longing for, what they were talking about. Prophets like Micah, prophets like Isaiah. That's who, I'm, that's who I am. I am this kind of king. And this is what my kingdom is all about. To bring justice, a generous kind of justice. One that brings mercy and restoration and healing and wholeness into a broken world. That's what Jesus says he came to do. And what's beautiful about this proclamation is, is Jesus is saying, and this is really what my kingdom is about, and that's what you're all called to do as well. Jesus says, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, says it very clearly. He says, I want you to do what? Seek first the kingdom. God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you as well. You see, when Jesus inaugurates his kingdom, he invites his people to step into that work with him. People of Israel had forgotten that calling. The calling God first gave them in Deuteronomy. And Jesus now comes and says, I'm restoring that calling. And I'm calling you, my people, to join me in it. You see, we live in the now but not yet of God's kingdom. We live in the now in the sense that the king has come. Jesus came that first, uh, that in his first coming way back in, you know, the very first century. He was born as one of us. He lived among us. He preached and he proclaimed and he enacted the kingdom. But the kingdom is still being played out in our worlds today until he comes again in his fullness. On the day of the Lord and makes all things new. The way that Micah was longing for. The way that Isaiah spoke about. And yet, we as a people who live in the already but not yet are called to be about his kingdom work. To be people who bring that kind of justice into our broken world. And to help us understand this, I actually want to turn to a, a very modern illustration, one that's actually come up quite a bit in the past year, uh, quite a bit in discussions around justice in our culture today, and that is the holiday of Juneteenth. Now, I don't know about you, I did not grow up learning about Juneteenth as a holiday. And yet, as I started to do some digging, I kind of started to figure out what this holiday was all about. Juneteenth, which is celebrated on June 19th, was meant to commemorate June 19th of 1865. This was two and a half years after President Abraham Lincoln's historic Emancipation Proclamation, and it was two months after the end of the Civil War. And on June 19th, 1865, U.S. Major General Gordon Granger and 1,800 soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas. And when they arrived, he issued General Order Number 3. And here's what General Order Number 3 reads. It says, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between an employer, an employer and hired labor. The freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and to work for wages. Basically, what he was doing is he was coming and he was letting the slaves know, you're free now. 
Two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, two months after the end of the Civil War, the good news of freedom and victory still hadn't reached Texas. And so that's what they were there to do, was to proclaim that the battle is ended and that freedom is yours. Now what's amazing, though, is that many of the white landowners who heard this proclamation actually didn't tell their slaves for another year. They continued to work them through another harvest season before the word got out to everybody that, hey, you can't do that anymore. But this is part of the reason why it's become known as Freedom Day or Emancipation Day. It's the oldest known celebration commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. The Texans started celebrating Juneteenth beginning in 1866. And as families emigrated around the country to other parts of the United States, they carried their Juneteenth celebrations with them. And then on January 1st, 1980, it became an official state holiday in Texas. When Al Edwards, a freshman state representative, put forward his bill HB 1016, making Texas the first state to grant this emancipation celebration. And since then, 45 other states and the District of Columbia have also commemorated and recognized this day. See, the reason people in our society today celebrate Juneteenth is because freedom is ours, and yet freedom is still being proclaimed to those who haven't heard it yet. Justice is ours, but justice is still being enacted in ways that are truly justice for all. And what I find fascinating about this illustration is that our society understands that, how much more should we as Christians understand our calling to justice? And here's what I mean. In AD 33, our king went to a cross and gave us freedom. He was nailed to that cross, and as he breathed his last breath, he declared, it is finished, and we are free. Three days later, The stone was rolled away from his tomb and he walked out into daylight alive again and proclaimed the resurrection, saying that the victory is now accomplished and you are free. In Christ, we have freedom and victory, but there's people who still need to hear about it. There's people who still need to hear about the freedom and the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's our job as his people, is to go out into the world, sent by our king, ambassadors of, our king, of his kingdom, bringing foretastes of that kingdom until he comes in glory and makes everything new. It's actually at the very heart of what we pray every single Sunday. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because that's who we are a people living in the already but not yet of the kingdom who bring foretastes of that kingdom into a world that is devastated and broken by sin. A world where injustice is the law of the land. Where idolatry continues to still crush and to oppress people, we proclaim a greater victory, a better kingdom, a greater freedom. That's why we pursue justice. That's what Micah meant when he told the people that they were called to do justice, to love kindness, 
and to walk humbly with their God. And that's our calling today as well. As we move through the rest of the series, we're going to look at each part of that calling. We're going to look at what does it mean to actually do justice, to pursue it as God's people. We're going to look at what it means to do so with loving kindness, the kind of loving kindness that God shows to us. And we're going to see what it means to pursue justice with loving kindness as we walk humbly with our God. But it all begins here with this beautiful vision of a world restored and remade. Because that is what our God will ultimately do. That's the gift he came to give us. That's the proclamation that Jesus made when he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. For he came to set the captives free. To give recovery of sight to the blind. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that in you, we do indeed have a God who is full of mercy and loving kindness. A God who pursues justice, but not the way our world pursues it, but in a way that brings true restoration to everyone. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us as we move through this series what it means to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with you. That the world might come to know you in all of your goodness, all of your fullness. And we pray that that vision would be the one that's at the very center of our hearts and our minds. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.